If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses of 2 Peter this morning, and we're really going to be spending the next two months in the, just the early verses of the first chapter of 2 Peter. So if you're a person who likes to just marinate in a passage of Scripture or a book of Scripture this fall, I recommend 2 Peter for that. Um, when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike into town. I lived out in the country, and I would ride my bike into town every day to go to the swimming pool. I had the season pass, and it was, it was a big deal. And, and where I grew up, a boy and his bike were, were one, you know? I mean, when I would watch, what's that old movie with what's-his-name riding that motorcycle through the fields? It's from the 60s. Uh, it's an iconic scene. I don't remember what the movie is called, but I remember this scene, and it was just this emblem and this picture of, of, of freedom and, and life, and, and this guy is just kind of out there, you know, living, living his life, and, and, and that was me and my BMX dirt bike which uh, back when I first started getting them, I got the cheap bikes. That I didn't, they weren't fancy. They didn't have the pegs on the front. You couldn't do a lot of tricks with them. And they had the brakes where, you know, you just push backwards on the pedals to stop. One day, I decided because of my love for my bike and my confidence in my union with my bike that I was going to do some regularly scheduled maintenance on my bike is what I was going to do. And so I got out some wrenches and I took, I took it apart and I uh, thought, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just thought I'm going to clean up the brakes. They weren't, there's nothing wrong with them, but I, I thought I was going to fix them anyway. And so I took the whole assembly apart on those brakes in the back. And there are all these, you know, when you, when you open that thing up, there's all kinds of pieces in there that you look at and you think, huh, I, I didn't expect to find something like this inside there. And there's lots of them. And I don't know where they came from, but they poured out. When I tipped it over, they all kind of came out. So I had this, this back tire in my bike, just sort of disassembled all the pieces all over the place, just there, and uh, cleaned everything up, put some oil in there, you know, and then tried to put it back together again, and I just couldn't. And it wasn't just that I didn't have brakes. It was that whatever I did to that, to that brake when I, when I put it back together, it not only wouldn't stop, but it also now wouldn't go. It was like locked. So I couldn't use my bike at all. It was dead. But it's a good illustration of everything I needed for my bike to work well was right there. It was all right there in front of me. The problem was is that I didn't know what I was working with. I didn't know what I had. In the Christian life, the Bible tells us, and we're going to be talking about this today, you're going to see it, today in scripture that everything that you need for life and godliness Christ has given you if your faith is in him it's not that he will give it to you he'll he'll pay it out a little bit at a time it's that he has he's given it to you perfectly completely you're looking at all the parts and the pieces are there we're going to start a new series today and I want to start by asking just a question that maybe we don't ask in church nearly enough. And that is this. If God has given us all that we need for everything that he has called us to do and to be, if his word promises that, 
and not just in one place, but many places. Why doesn't your life reflect it? Why doesn't my life reflect it? Why, when we look at the great and precious promises that God has given us, do we kind of look at them and think, for me, it's not working? I say this is an important question for us to ask in church because perhaps there's no greater place on earth where we feel more compelled to pretend that everything's fine, that we get it, that it's all working together. Meanwhile, all of us on some level or another are looking at our spiritual lives and saying things are not working the way that they're supposed to. So why is that? Why is that? Is that an interesting question to you? That's where we're going to be going this fall. We're going to be talking about, okay, how does the gospel transform me? Where is the power to transform my life in the gospel of Jesus Christ? If this promise is true that everything that I need has been given to me by Christ, how do I understand the way that it's supposed to work in my life and the way that I'm supposed to interact with it? If you're new to Midtown, one of the things that brings me just great joy as a pastor, is knowing that this is a church, Midtown is a church, where we are committed to Christ being at the center of what we believe and what we preach. We are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only thing that can change us. We can't change ourselves. You're not going to get a self-help gospel here. You're not going to get us telling you that you just need to make some better decisions in your life and God will then give you more things. We want to understand what does it mean that everything that I need for life and godliness has been given to me already by Christ, and then how do I participate in that? How do I live in that? How do I rest in that? How do I carry out my days, make decisions, handle relationships in, in that? We're going to talk about some pretty searching and revealing things, and we've been talking about some pretty searching and revealing things this year. We're going to talk about our deep need for Christ, the vast expanse of the brokenness that we live in spiritually and relationally and emotionally. We're going to dig into that. We're going to talk about what it means to grow up as Christians, what it means to mature in Christ. And know this, when we talk about maturing spiritually, we don't believe that we are uh, neglecting other forms of growing in maturity. It's not just we're focused on, we'll just grow spiritually mature. We believe that you're not going to be a mature person unless you're a spiritually mature person. I'm not going to be a mature person unless I'm a spiritually mature person. We're going to talk about what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ, what it means for the gospel to change our lives. We're going to talk about our eternal hope, our eternal destinies, our future, where our hope lies. And most importantly, we're going to proclaim a gospel where Christ is at the middle and the center of everything because we believe that he is the author and the sustainer and the finisher of our faith. So he's at the heart of it. He's at the core. Christ is everything. A gospel without Christ is an empty lie. And so we're going to be talking about what does it mean for us to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're going to be doing it through the lens of just being honest and saying, my life doesn't reflect what the promises of Scripture tell me are the case for me. 
in my life and faith. So how do I make sense of that? What do I, what do I need to know? How do I participate and engage with this? What should our lives look like? We're digging into that. And I love that this is coming on the heels of Joel last week talking about our radical helplessness, that we're in this position where we really can't do anything for God. I can't make God bless me. I can't coax anything from him through my own attempts at being righteous. But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's why the gospel is called good news. That's not how it's supposed to work. It's not supposed to be me getting an unrelenting, unwilling, uh, angry God to cooperate with my best intentions, but instead the life of godliness and faith, the scripture says for the believer, this is yours, is a life where we're engaging with him and what he's doing in us. So I want to read 2 Peter 1, the first four verses, and then we're going to spend a little time uh, just working with the language of what, what is he saying here. So he, he starts off this way in 2 Peter 1. From Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to stop right there and just say, I hope that that first verse strikes you as a loaded statement. Because what Peter is saying to young Christians is what he's saying is your faith is equal in its standing before God as, as my faith. Peter, this apostle who was there at the transfiguration when Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. Peter, who was, who was there, who walked on water with Jesus. Peter, who, who, who the risen Christ appeared to and cooked him breakfast on the shores of Galilee and reinstated him with this, do you love me, Peter? He said, I love you. I've called you to feed my sheep, Peter. You're gonna be my apostle, Peter. You're gonna bring the gospel into this world. This, this man, he's saying to us, if your faith is in Jesus, your faith is every bit as valid as mine. No more, no less. We'll revisit that uh, in coming weeks. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There it is. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let me pray again. Lord, illuminate your word for us. Give us uh, attentive minds to engage with what it is that you're saying to us here. This is just an amazing statement that you give us in the early verses of this letter, and, and uh, uh, would you help us to see it? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. When you look at verse three here, and you think of your own life, where's the power in your life spiritually? Where does it come from? What, where, where, where do you 
Where do you ride that, that power in your life? Do you know what I'm asking you? Where's the power, the spiritual power in your life to be the best that you can be, you know? To live your best life now. Where do you believe that the power comes from to live well? There are a lot of voices right now in our culture, in our world that will tell you that, well, that just comes from you. That comes from you deciding that you're going to just believe better, that you're going to live better, that you're going to make decisions better, that you're going to do this or do that, that all these things, that these voices coming. But what does verse 3 tell us? It says that the power to live in godliness is God's divine power. Verse 3, it says it this way. It comes from God's divine power. His divine power has been granted to us. It doesn't originate in me. It originates with God. You may not know this. You may not connect this in your mind right now, but I would suspect that if you've been in church your whole life, all your life in some fashion or another, the odds are decent that there have been voices telling you that that power resides in you, that you're the originator of that power, that you need to do better, that you need to try harder, that you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself somehow worthy of God then meeting you in, in the place. It's this image of, of the cross as a bridge in salvation, right? That there's this chasm between me and God, and the gospel is that there's this bridge that crosses over, and that, and that bridge is a cross. And, and what it's telling us is that Christ has created a bridge for me now to approach the throne of God boldly. I'm hesitant because some of us have that picture on our wall. Some of us have found that illustration very meaningful in helping us understand how salvation works. But I submit to you, it's not biblical. It's not biblical that Christ is a bridge by which I then approach God. What's biblical is I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. And that God, by his son, Jesus, makes me alive that he rescues me, that he saves me, that I don't come to God, that God comes to me, that he not only comes to me, but he has to come to me because I'm dead in my sins and trespasses. It's his divine power. How does a person obtain his divine power is the next question that Peter is answering for us here. And in verse 3, you see it again. His divine power has been granted to us. What's fascinating about that is that that's a past tense expression. That if you're in Christ, his divine power has been given to you already. Past tense. We get it because he gives it. We don't go and take it. And so, what specifically has he granted to us by his divine power? Verse 3 again tells us he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This expression, all things, comes after this passive perfect verb, meaning just what the text says, that God has already supplied you, if you're a believer, everything that you need for life and godliness. You, right now, lack nothing. Do you believe that? Does that, maybe the question isn't do you believe it, but does that resonate with you? Do you feel that way? Do you, does that seem true in your life? That's what Peter's writing about. That's why he's saying this. He's writing to a group of people who are saying, that doesn't seem true to me. That doesn't resonate with me. How does this work? And it's just stark. He doesn't leave 
wiggle room here. He says he's given you all things, all things. Nothing is withheld. You don't lack anything. What do we do when we believe that our Christian lives are supposed to look and work in ways that we'd have to honestly confess aren't our reality? I'm supposed to trust him with my future, but I'm stricken with anxiety. Or by my age, certain sins are supposed to be, I'm supposed to be on the other side of them now. I'm not supposed to be dealing with these anymore, but I still cave in my flesh and, 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 and my fears, and I do this every day. What's that? What's going on with that? Or what about this? I'm more dishonest than honest in life. In my work, in my relationships, I spin the truth or just outright lie more than I tell the truth. Why do I do that if my identity's in Christ? Or what about this? I'm supposed to train my children to love and to follow Christ. I'm supposed to believe that he loves them, parent. Sometimes I feel like I barely know how to connect with my kids. Don't even know who they are. Don't know where to find their hearts. Do you ever wonder about this stuff? What is it? What's going on there? I mean, he's given me all of his promises. He's given me everything that I need for life and godliness, and yet inside we're just a mess. There's just so much chaos, so many pieces of the bike brakes just sort of laying around, and we don't even know, what to, we don't even know where to begin. We don't know what's broken. What changes us? What changes us? If I have everything that I need for life and godliness already, why are we even talking about change? Shouldn't it have already happened? Shouldn't I already be different? Shouldn't I just believe that I'm living my best life now? That I can close my eyes to whatever hurts or brokenness is there and just say, it can't be real, it can't be real, but it is real. It is real. So what's Peter getting at? Let's keep digging in the text. Are you following? Is it, It's up here. How has... God granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness is the next question. What is the context, the center of this thing that he has given us? It's not just steps to better living. It's not unlocking some sort of spiritual secret. In verse 3, he continues, he's done this through the knowledge of him, of Christ, who has called us to his own glory and excellence. What he's saying is you've been given everything that you need for life and godliness and the content of what you've been given all centers around the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what it means for you to live and to follow after him. Ah, now we're getting into it. The reason my life doesn't reflect this truth of scripture is because I have my eyes closed to what Christ is doing and what he has done. I am unaware of the function and the role and the presence of some of these things that he has given me that I may know him and walk with him and love him and enjoy him forever. I just don't, I don't understand where they fit, like those little pieces. The life and godliness that God means for us to know and enjoy is something that comes from him. He's the source of it. 
And it's all about Christ. He's the means by which I find this. So God is both the source of the power in my life and he's also the means by which I find life and godliness. I hope that that's not too confusing of a way to say, do you see how really passive we are in receiving any good thing from the Lord? That he gives and he gives and he gives. It's it's by his power He gives us everything that we need. He's the source of it, and it's all about him. That's the content. Why, then, is the knowledge of Christ, who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, uh, so important for us to understand? Verse 4 talks about this. It says, it's through the work of Christ's redeeming grace, the gospel of redemption that calls us out of darkness and into light, that we're granted all of God's great and precious promises that the story of the gospel, the content about Jesus is telling us God has made promises in time and space. He's made promises in history for you. And you need to understand that all of God's great and precious promises are for you. All of his promises are yes in Christ, one of the scripture writers says. What are some of the promises that he's talking about here? These things that are immovably true, that, that are the reason why we have everything that we need for life and godliness. There's this promise that Christ has fully atoned for my sins through his life and his death and his resurrection. That the coming of Christ and the reason for his living and his dying and his rising again was effective at accomplishing my salvation. There's this promise that he loves me with an everlasting, unchanging love. There's this promise that nothing will ever be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ. This is a great and precious promise that is true for you if you're in Christ. There's this promise that he's coming back, that he's going to return, and he's going to usher in his kingdom. And when he does, we are going to be full citizens there in ways that are far richer and greater than we have ever understood what it means to be citizens before. This is just a few of the great and precious promises that he's saying are true for you. They're true for you already. Why does it matter then that he's granted us these great and precious promises? Why does it matter? Because there's a life we're supposed to know in Christ. There's a life that he's given us that we would know and enjoy him. It's a life that's about so much more than just obeying rules and doing things right and being the right kind of Christian. It's a life that is a life of relationship with the one who made us. That that's the whole point of spirituality is we are image bearers of God made in his image, made to relate to him, made to know him, to walk with him, to enjoy him, for him to be the sole dominant object of our affection. That Your heart is made for that. Your heart is made for that to delight in the Lord in that way. And so he gets to this second part of verse four and he just says something that's kind of otherworldly. And here's what he says. He said, his great and precious promises were given so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You may become partakers of the divine nature. The NIV says you may become participants with the divine. 
that God has done all these things. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. He's given you his son. He's saved you. He's cleansed you of your sins. He's done this already. All the great and precious promises of his are yours so that you, to borrow an Old Testament phrase, might walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day. That you would know him and love him and enjoy him forever. That you would participate with him in the life that he has given you. Is this interesting to you? That we're going to be unpacking this because the next verses that we're not going to get into today, he tells us, here's how you do that. Here's how you participate with the divine. That's where we're going. You don't, you don't want to miss this. Martin Luther said this about this text. I have the, te- the, the quote up here because I just want you to see it. Martin Luther said this. He said, This we have, Peter says, through the power of faith, namely that we are partakers of and enjoy the fellowship and communion with the divine nature. And he says, This is a passage, the like of which is not found in the Old and New Testaments, although it is no small matter that we should have fellowship with the very divine nature. So what he's saying there is, uh, this is maybe one of the most marvelous statements that you're going to find in Scripture. This is an amazing thing. He continues, what is the nature of God? And let this wash over you. It is the eternal righteousness, wisdom, eternal life, peace, joy, and happiness, and everything good that can be named. This is the nature of God. Now, whoever becomes a partaker of the nature of God receives all this. Namely, he lives forever, possesses endless peace, pleasure, and joy, and is sincere, pure, just, and almighty against Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, Peter will say, as impossible as it is to separate eternal life and eternal truth from the nature of God, just so impossible it is to separate them from you. (laughs) Do you believe that? Does your life reflect that? Already this is the case for you. Ephesians 5, Paul is writing to Christians and he says it like this in verses 8 and 9. You are light in the world. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. It's what you are. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. There's this, uh, in, the, in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, he describes his prophecy that he's about to write in the very first verse of that book as an oracle. It says this is an oracle of the Lord, and that word oracle, or the word that is used for the message that prophets bring, is, is, an, is a word that can be used as a, to describe a burden. So, so a prophet, or one who's bringing the message of God, says, I'm bringing you a burden 
from the Lord, this heavy thing to sort of lift and to place upon the altar of our lives. And I think that this is a burden, this text. It's heavy. Because what it's telling us is that there is a reality about who we already are in Christ that is immovable, unshakable, that can't be changed, that can't be taken away, that can't be broken. And yet, even though it's true of me, I often feel a million miles away from this. What in the world is going on in me? If I have been given everything that I need for life and godliness already, why? Why am I a million miles away? Why am I hiding from God in the garden in the hopes that he won't find me? What does it look like to walk as children of the light? One of the things it doesn't mean, please hear me in this, is it doesn't mean that I have a hand in God saving me. It doesn't mean that I'm bringing anything to the table that God is looking at and evaluating and saying, because you bring that, I will love you. I will save you. That is not a gospel. That is not good news. That is terrible news. If the rest of Scripture is true, which tells us that even my best acts of righteousness are filthy. This passage in its passive perfect tense will not allow us to say that we bring anything to the equation of salvation. It isn't as though if I would just participate with God, then he would take away my sins. What he's saying is if you're in Christ, you've already been given everything that you need and that has come by God's divine power from him. This is his work. Participating with the divine, with God, doesn't create a new reality for you. When we talk about what does it mean for me to then participate with the divine, to be a partaker in the divine nature, to be one who interacts with God's will for his life and his promises and the things that he has given me. It's not that if we will just do this, a new reality will be given to us. It's that if we will just do this, the reality of what is already there will be open for us that we will see, that we will understand, that we will understand. I've had my eyes closed to so much. It's not primarily about revealing something true about me even. It's God revealing something that's true about him, something that's true about his power, his gift, his love, his affection, his, his will, his purpose. When Peter calls us to participate with the divine, which we're gonna unpack over these next two months, he's calling us to wake up examine and embrace the great and precious promises that are already spoken over us. And this morning, we have a great opportunity to do that in coming to this table. This is a table that is a proclamation of the gospel to our senses, to, to the whole of who we are, that we, that we hear words spoken over these elements and we hear words spoken to each other as we take these elements, that we see them with our eyes, this bread and this cup, that we touch them, we pick them up with our hands, we, we hold them, we taste them, we take them in. There's, 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 we get up out of our seats and we're active and we're moving and we're participating and the Lord is saying, let this awaken you, let this experience of what it is that you're doing be something that proclaims to you the truth of what these elements represent for you, something that has been done. We don't come to this table in the hopes that Jesus will one day lay down his life for us. We come to this table to remember 
that he has already done this, to remember that he has given us this bread, that he had his disciples gathered in a room together the night he was betrayed, and he took this bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this bread is my body, and it's for you. Eat this and remember me. Remember what I'm doing. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, later talking to young Christians about this table and they're coming to it all those years, not many, but all those years after Christ had been raised from the dead. He said, look, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The way that we do communion here, and we're going to do this in just a minute, is, uh, is we don't pass the elements out by rows. Instead, we have these two tables up here at the front, and we ask you to just come and to kneel around the tables, to break off a piece of the bread, to take one of the cups, to serve each other. This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ, which is for you. And I want you to understand that when you... We, we don't ever want to just do this to do it. You know, the Bible says do communion. It's the first of the month we need to do communion. This table should engage us. The two active words that the scriptures use are remember and proclaim. And so we're remembering what Christ has done already by God's power, and we're proclaiming all my eggs are in this basket. This is all my hope and peace is Jesus' blood and righteousness. And it's the reason why we have people stand and come to the front to kneel is because we want you to have this experience of proclaiming with the very act of rising from your chair and stepping forward to take these elements. You're saying by that very act of coming here, I believe that I need this. I believe that he has done this for me. That being said, it makes sense that I would say what I'm going to say now. And that is that if you are not a Christian, I want to ask you not to come and take communion. And that's not a, uh, an insult. Uh, it's a matter of integrity. That if the reason that we take this table is to remember what Christ has done and to proclaim, I believe that he did this for me, and that's not your confession, then it's, an, it's a matter of honesty to to decline to come to the table. Christians, if this is your confession and you're struggling and you're doubting and you're not sure if you're worthy to come, you've just read from God's word that the power of God in you that makes you worthy of his love doesn't originate with how well you're doing right now. You can rest in knowing that you are held and you are kept by the love and the power of God himself. And as a matter of integrity and honesty in that, I would implore you, even if you don't feel like it, come to this table and let Christ nourish you with these elements and with this time of fellowship. He is stronger than your greatest sin. If you're hearing this this morning and you're thinking, I... I don't think I'm a Christian, but I believe that he is calling me to believe. Then instead of coming to this table, come, come to me. 
uh, and, and we'll pray together about, about that and then, and then come to the table together, okay? I'm going to pray and uh, then the worship team is going to play a little bit of music and we won't dismiss by rows again. It's just whenever you're ready, come take time. We're not in a hurry. We have plenty of time. And, uh, and uh, then as things are kind of winding down, we'll, we'll bring the service to a close, all right? Father, thank you for this table that tells us a lot of things about uh, where we fit into the story of your saving grace. Father, I do pray that, that none of us would ever um, not only approach communion, but approach you in a cavalier, sort of self-entitled way. And yet at the same time, Lord, I do pray that you would make us to be people who, if our faith is in you, that we would approach you with confidence in knowing that the strength and the power that upholds us before you is your strength and power and not ours. That the, uh, the, 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 the atonement, the, the righteousness that we bring before you is the righteousness of your son, not ours. And that we would rest in that and delight in that and know that everything that we need for life and godliness that you have given us. Father, would you challenge us, even today, even as we're just dipping our toe in the pool of this chapter of Scripture, Lord, uh, if nothing else, would you, would you please just give us the courage this week to wrestle with the dissonance between what we know we're supposed to feel or what we believe we're supposed to feel as Christians and what we actually feel. Would you make us to be a people who are honest enough to wrestle boldly with you about the struggles inside of us? If you have given us everything that we need, why don't our lives reflect that? Would you make us a people who are not afraid to ask that question to you? And would you show us through your word and through your spirit what it means then to participate with you in your great and precious promises that you have given. Father, I thank you for this group. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for this city. I thank you for the things that you're doing in this town. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the stories that are unfolding in the lives of so many here. And Lord, I ask uh, that you would just minister to us in a powerful way today as we come to this table. Uh, would you help us to be a people who trust that this, what this table represents, the body and blood of Christ given for us, is sufficient for everything that we need. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory that we now come to this table. Amen and amen.